electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange today. Intel is set to report earnings. Can the battleground name and key U.S. supplier justify its recent rally with a new CEO, an ambitious turnaround plan, and more competition than ever? Plus, one hot burrito. Chipotle reports a huge jump in sales as its doors opened and its app dominated. The CEO joins us to talk spending trends, jobs, and inflation pressures. And Goldman's EV call, an under-the-radar stay-at-home stock, and goodbye robots. Hello, trunks. It's all ahead today, but we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. I keep thinking about hot burritos right now. You got me hungry, Kelly, is basically what it comes down to. Looking forward to that Chipotle interview. I also want to call your attention right now to the fact that the markets are well off their session lows at this point. At the lows of the day, the Dow Industrials are down roughly 182 points or thereabouts. You can see we're only down about 16 right now. The S&P 500 up about one-tenth of one percent, 4180 the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite, 14,015, up about one-half of one percent, the outperformer among the major three indexes. One place, though, that is a real hot burrito is the transportation market here. The iShares Dow Jones U.S. Transportation Index Fund, ticker IYT, up one-half of one percent, but more importantly, up 89 percent over the last year. It gets a gold star because it hit a record intraday high in trading today, driven by some of the strength in airline stocks because of earnings reports and whatnot. And then Equifax, a name that we don't often talk about. It is single-handedly far and away the biggest gainer in the S&P 500 today, up about 17 points. The consumer data provider that's maybe best known for credit scores, also computer services for uh, companies and enterprise customers, had a better-than-expected earnings report, highest quarterly revenue ever, and they upped their full-year guidance for earnings and revenues. We're four years almost removed from that big data breach. Remember that one? Kelly, Equifax, back in 2017. Now those shares hit a record high in trading today. Equifax, your stock of the day. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, we always talk about it. You know, if you always just went back and looked at whatever was the major headline a year ago, you know, Equifax, that was like that story dominated for months. And now it's like, remember that? Yeah. 2017. That's how long ago it was. That's why they often say it's a buying opportunity. Dom, thanks. Appreciate it. it. Intel results are due after the bell today. It's been a wild year for this chip maker. Manufacturing delays, stiff competition, and the chip shortage are all weighing on performance. But an ambitious plan from the new CEO is giving some hope to the street. My next guest says the stock will outperform and has an $80 price target. Joining me is Cowan Analyst and Managing Director Matt Ramsey. Matt, it's good to have you. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, Intel's a critical story um, for the U.S. A major, major manufacturer has, you know, the opportunity to be in the middle of a domestic supply chain if it can pull this off and get this transformation right. But do you really think that this stock can hit $80 in the near term? Well, our our $80 price target's a year out, as is typical. But I, I think with Pat Gelsinger coming in as the new CEO, that was step one in the turnaround, technically focused leadership. Um, step number two, get the seven nanometer process right. Um, step number three, get the architecture right. And we've seen progress on all three of those fronts. No question, competition is tough from AMD, from NVIDIA, from other ARM-based vendors, Apple going to its own silicon for, for many of its Mac products. 
competition is tough, but we just felt like the stock was being priced as a perpetual share loser. And at a 50% discount to the stock, shares were just too cheap given the catalysts that were ahead and right. the, the chances for some significant government support and government funding as they move towards reinvesting in their own manufacturing footprint. Still, it's hard not to see this as a story where those who bet on the upstarts, you know, the NVIDIAs, the AMDs, over the past decade have been proven right. Then you get this story yesterday, NVIDIA hitting Intel where it hurts with a new data center CPU. You know, how, why is, how is Intel going to be able to fend off competition while at the same time relaunching the way that, you know, it does business and trying to attract new business from, you know, people under this new model? It just seems like they are trying to do a lot of things at once. Yeah, they certainly are. And, and as you say, the, the folks that have invested in, in the competition, AMD, NVIDIA, TSMC in Taiwan, those investors have been handsomely rewarded, and we've been uh, big supporters of those companies in, in our stock ratings. Um, but turning and looking at what assets Intel does have, um, they're the largest manufacturer of chips in the U.S. by a huge margin. Um, U.S. competitiveness vis-a-vis China over the next decade is significantly um, dependent on computing leadership, um, domestic chip supply, and I, I just think there are more opportunities here as Intel uses its breadth and depth of relationship across the enterprise and the wireless markets to keep their server share a bit higher than folks think. No question in the next two years, yeah. um, share losses are going to happen. The new products that the team under Pat's leadership are proposing turning around the company essentially launched in 2023, which is a heck of a long time in semiconductors. But at the same time, uh, the, the government support here, I think, will be significant, as are the assets that mm-hmm. Intel has to bring to bear in the market. So let's talk about the quarter this afternoon. And, you know, as as when we're watching the Fed, there's certain language that, you know, is a signal for risk on and risk off. What's the language with Intel that to you says this is, so to speak, a risk on stock? And what's the language or maybe the lack of language that would say to you, you know what, it's going to take longer than I thought? Um, I, I think it's an interesting one that, that this particular set of earnings, they already pre-announced upside to, to the first quarter results. They gave us full year revenue and EPS guidance. So a lot of the, the cards have already been played with respect to near-term numbers and to the long-term strategy. What we really care about is progress on the seven nanometer roadmap, um, the potential for government funding around CapEx and R&D dollars, and, and third, a, a plan to support customers to bridge the gap from where the product line is now to where the product line will be in 2023 when things are turning around. Mm. It's a less consequential set of numbers tonight. It's much more about continuing the conversation that, that all of us analysts started with the new management team on their big strategy announcement a month ago yeah. and, and understanding the details of their foundry plans. So final question for everybody watching, everyone you know, from businesses to consumers, can you tell us what is the latest on the chip shortage and how realistically you think it will soon be resolved? I mean, how there are a lot of different driving factors here, but what, what's the latest that you're hearing in the industry? The ship shortages are real, uh, and then they're across up and down the stack from the highest end data center chips to um, trailing edge manufacturing chips that go into um, the automotive industry and a lot of industrial industries. Uh, We feel like in our work that by the second half of the year, you've seen significant raised CapEx at Taiwan Semiconductor, um, new investment plans from Samsung, new investment plans from Intel, that there will be some significantly higher capacity for the high end digital markets in the back half of this year. In the auto supply chain and some of these industrial markets for trailing edge technology where maybe the margins aren't as high in manufacturing, uh, it could take into 2022. And and we've even heard some industry folks talk about longer than that before supply meets demand. So 
it's a severe problem and it's not just on wafers. It's on testing, packaging, substrates. There's a lot of parts of the industry that rightly cut back on investment during the peak of the COVID pandemic. And it just takes time to re-ramp that supply after underinvesting a year ago. It's going to be the story of the year. It seems maybe get worse before it gets better, kind of like you hinted at. Uh, Matt, thanks for your context. We appreciate it. And we'll see what no, Intel anytime. does after the Matt Ramsey of Cowan joining me. And don't miss Intel's new CEO tonight on Mad Money at 6 p.m. Eastern. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans unveiling their counteroffer to President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan today. It's got a smaller price tag. It's less than $600 billion. It does still focus on capital improvements to transit systems, roads and technology. If some version of these proposals is ultimately passed, who stands to gain the most and how can investors benefit? Let's welcome in Kevin Mon. He's the president and CIO of Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. Kevin, this is a great opportunity to talk for a minute about what, you know, how to separate the signal and the noise here. What is really likely to get passed? Uh, who stands to benefit and where? Sure. And now we've seen the Republicans counter proposal to the Democrats infrastructure spending plan. And Kelly, we know that it differs in terms of amount of spending the scope of the spending, and ultimately how it's going to be funded. The Democrats' plan calls for over $2 trillion in infrastructure-related spending, whereas the Republicans' plans, as we've just learned, calls for roughly $568 billion. But it's the scope of the spending and the similarities in the scope of the spending that we believe creates investment opportunities, specifically as it relates to upgrading and repairs to our nation's roads, bridges, highways, changes to our uh, electrical grid, expansion of our broadband access, all of that creates potential opportunities for certain sectors of the stock market, those being industrials, materials, energy, utilities, yep. and even communication services. Well, Kevin, even as we're speaking, there's a headline hitting the wires and, and hitting the market right now. The Dow's at session lows down about 170 points. Uh, President Biden apparently is going to propose a capital gains tax as high as 43.4% for the wealthy. Tell me about that, the market reaction and what's likely to happen here. Yeah, and that's that's the other side of the potential investment equation that sits off of this infrastructure spending bill. As we know, the majority of our infrastructure projects in our country are financed by municipal bonds. It appears as though with this particular infrastructure spending bill that an increase in taxes may come along with it as well, whether that be corporate taxes or even individual taxes. Given that, Kelly, the demand for tax-free income that's associated with municipal bonds should continue to increase. Mm -hmm. And as that demand increases, that should push prices higher. I know. Ironically, you guys kind of, you know, uh, drool at some of these prospects. But I do wonder, and we're going to talk about this later in the program, uh, as to whether all of these proposals ultimately help or hinder the U.S. economy. And, and you want, obviously, a productive, efficient economy in order to really maximize even, you know, returns on municipal on municipal debt, right? So if we're talking about, and here's a few more uh, headlines from this, you know, California's total capital gain levy approaching 56.7%. What's that going to do to investment? Yeah, obviously, that's going to cripple investment. And we have to counterbalance the need to put America back to work again, the need to repair our infrastructure in our country with the need to also grow our economy. At the heart of an infrastructure spending mill is putting America back to work again. We've made tremendous strides since the beginning stages of the pandemic when unemployment rose to 14.7%. Right now, Kelly, it's around 6%. And perhaps with the passage of some form of an infrastructure spending bill, we'll get that unemployment rate down to 4.5% by the end of this year. But that can't be done at the detriment of economic growth. So we really have to counterbalance the need to put America back to work again yeah. with 
not taxing too high. And we're showing, as the markets try to figure out what that will mean for growth, the Dow's down about 250 points right now, the 10-year below 1.6%. So the yield there is sliding. So I guess now we have this interesting push and pull where the way they're going to pay for it might highlight uh, the need to scale back some of the plans. Perhaps, again, it depends on, on what ultimately, I guess, constituents' appetite is. Um, if something more pared down is what passes, and it's under a trillion dollars in the case of the infrastructure bill, you know, where do you see that shaking out? So if it's focused on roads and airports and those kinds of things, what would be your, your specifically best investments uh, that you'd recommend? You know, one area that I think both Republicans and Democrats agree upon is the need to expand broadband access and bring Internet capabilities all throughout our country. That creates a lot of potential opportunities in communication services. You know, we just came out at SmartChest with our Tax Advantage Growth and Income Trust, and a couple of the names we like in that area uh, include Verizon uh, and AT&T. And then you look at some of the traditional infrastructure stocks, whether it be Martin Marietta or Caterpillar. They're going to be a large benefactor of whatever the infrastructure spending bill ultimately becomes. Yep. And maybe some of that's already priced in. Uh, and maybe we just have to wait and see how much of this really uh, does pass as the details become uh, apparent. Kevin, thanks for now. We'll leave it there. Appreciate it. We'll check back in My soon. Pleasure. Kevin Mann. Coming up, we'll have more on what the president's announcing, what it means for the economy. We're also going to talk Chipotle, posting huge sales numbers as its early push into digital pays off with online orders surging 134%. CEO Brian Nickel will talk to us about digital delivery and the labor shortage. Plus, one plan but two different outcomes. New studies on the president's jobs plan are at odds over the end result, whether it would be more jobs or less. We'll debate with the markets down about 250 points. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. If you didn't see it, Chipotle's first quarter earnings beat Wall Street expectations handily as the company's online sales overtook in-person orders for the first time. But the reopening of dining rooms was also a big boost for sales. Kate Rogers joins us now with the details and a very special guest. Kate? 
Kelly, thanks so much. Chipotle's adjusted EPS coming in at 5.36 a share. That's about 10% above analyst estimates. Revenue right in line at 1.74 billion. Same store sales climbing 17.2%. The company pointing to marketing, new menu items like quesadillas, and government stimulus for the boost this quarter. And digital sales, of course, always a key metric for the company, up 134% year over year to 50.1% of sales. The company is also hanging on to those digital customers even as it's dining rooms reopen. Chipotle also adding 26 new Chipotle's, which of course drive higher sales and margins in the quarter. Joining us now first on CNBC is Brian Nickel, Chipotle CEO. Brian, congrats on the quarter. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Kate. It's great to hear all those numbers. <laughs> well, let's talk about digital sales. You noted yesterday on the call you're hanging on to those digital customers. You're also seeing digital sales right above their COVID peak. That was notable to me because, as we mentioned, your dining rooms are also reopening and customers are coming back through that channel. As CEO, what is the preferred mix here between digital sales and in-person sales moving ahead? Yeah, look, what we want to do is we want to provide access both ways. And uh, obviously the digital transaction where you order ahead and pick up, whether it's in the Chipotle lane or in our restaurant, is our most profitable transaction. But uh, look, we have a great economic model, whether it's an in-dining room experience or a digital experience. So we're really indifferent. Uh, What we want to commit ourselves to is great food, great experience that's customized and fast. So you know, I love our situation. We've got a, a capacity coming out of our kitchen to service, you know, both of these uh, occasions for Chipotle. And uh, you're seeing the power of it in our results. I know the quesadilla is something that you've said over the years. A lot of people had been kind of clamoring for and asking for. Launching it has been a big success. You had a record amount of new customers in March coming to the brand, trying that out. Are you retaining them? And how does this process kind of inform new menu additions moving ahead? Yeah, we are really excited about the launch of Quesadilla. You know, we're a couple weeks in. As you mentioned, uh, we saw our highest level of new users uh, to the Chipotle business. And uh, the Quesadilla has really delivered on all expectations. It's, you know, giving a great customer experience, the number one requested product. Uh, Our teams are doing an outstanding job on the digital side of it. And our operators are saying, hey, look, it makes the quesadilla operation a lot easier than it was before when people used to order off menu. And those folks that are ordering the quesadillas, we're seeing them come back. So, you know, it's early days, but uh, I'm feeling really confident about this new entree in uh, the Chipotle mix. Brian, it's Kelly here. Thank you again for joining us. And, uh, you know, viewers are are anticipating and waiting with bated breath for you to talk about the labor market. Um, You know, can you talk about what's going on with wages, with uh, finding workers, and just give us as much sense as you can of what challenges you're facing out there right now? Yeah, so I'll speak to what we're seeing. And what we're seeing is, you know, our business, and I think businesses in general, we're going to come to find out, really started to ramp up in uh, March as, you know, the vaccine rates went up and uh, obviously uh, COVID cases started to decline and then you layered in the stimulus check. So the consumer, I think, was ready to get out uh, and have these social experiences. Uh, so we've seen our business really uh, accelerate. Uh, you know, now we are trying to play catch up a little bit with our hiring to match the acceleration in the business. And it's a very competitive market. And, you know, what we're seeing is when we bring forward Chipotle's purpose around cultivating a better world and, you know, food with integrity paired up with, Uh, all the great benefits, wages, and growth opportunities, 
uh, we get really good applicants to come into our business. And then what we focus on is how do we keep them in the business? So uh, it's more of a challenge of making sure people know, hey, we are hiring in a meaningful way. Once we get that word out, we see really good applicant flow. And then our biggest challenge is keeping them in the business beyond those first 30, 60, 90 days. Brian, last question here, just on technology. Technologies become synonymous with Chipotle. You guys are doing it really well. The company just uh, revealed its investment in Neuro, the robotic delivery company. You talked a bit about tech investments on the call yesterday. How are you evaluating opportunities for investing both internally and externally uh, in the technology space to continue to differentiate? Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Kate. We're always looking for technology that gives a better employee experience or a better customer experience. So we start with that lens. And then obviously we want to hold the technology to a, a you know, kind of a, a standard that either is improving efficiency or somehow or another makes us better at what we're trying to execute. So you've seen this with our digital make line business. We're doing some things on uh, forecasting, supply chain management, and we're seeing technology really play a role from the very first day we sign up a new employee to train them, get them developed all the way to how do we give more consumers more access to Chipotle at a great value. So um, we're very excited about the neuro investment, but uh, you know, I still believe there's so much growth opportunity in our business. And we're going to use technology to enable that growth. Brian, real quickly, I just want to ask this as a follow-up because you said something that's really interesting. You're not having trouble finding workers to start. You're having trouble keeping them past 30 and 60 days. And we've heard anecdotally about other hospitality uh, jobs where they're giving people $1,000 bonuses if they, stay, if they stay on past 90 days. Why is it that it's so hard to get people to stick around? Yeah, well, what we're seeing is um, definitely a little bit more of this dynamic where people are just job switching more aggressively. And I think it is these one-time incentives that are popping up. Uh, so what we are focused on is trying to get people to understand, hey, look, there are rewards here in the short term, but there are also rewards by staying with our company. Uh, you know, our, our company, you can come in as a crew member and find yourself running you know, a multi-million dollar restaurant making, you know, $60,000, $80,000 in a matter of two years. Yep. But you got to get through those first 90 days. And so it, it's become much more competitive in the first 30, 60, 90 days to retain and develop your people. That is fascinating. Thank you for elaborating on that. We're going to have more about that uh, next hour. In fact, Kate and Brian, thank you both. Uh, Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel with our own Kate Rogers. Quick break. After that, we're going to talk about this social stock up 240% in the past year, but can it keep user and revenue growth going post-pandemic? Plus the president's American jobs plan. Will it help or will it hurt the economy? We have a great debate lined up you don't want to miss ahead. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com meetingdemand meeting demand. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. I want to get you caught up on the markets right now, which slid to session lows at the top of the hour on some headlines uh, that the Biden administration is reportedly looking at possibly raising the capital gains tax back up towards 40 percent in order to pay for the American Families Plan included in the Build Back Better plan. Uh, we're a little bit off the lows. We were down about 250. We're down 216 at the moment. and We're working to confirm with the administration uh, the actual details. That's a two-thirds percent decline for the Dow, the worst performer today. And the 10-year yield also slid back closer to one and a half percent below 1.6 percent which had been, uh, as you can see earlier in the session, something that was more uh, possible, shall we say, a little bit more uh, bullish. Now a little bit of a change there mirroring what we're seeing with the market. We'll keep an eye on it. We have a debate on this issue coming up in a few moments as well. Let's get to Rahel Solomon first, though, for our CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Ukrainian officials are welcoming Russia's withdrawal of thousands of troops from along its border in Crimea. They were part of what Russia called military exercises that greatly increased tensions between the two neighboring countries. NATO calls the de-escalation important and timely. The House has voted along party lines to make the District of Columbia a state. That said, the measure will almost certainly fail in the Senate. Democrats need 60 votes, and even a few members of their own party are not on board at this point. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, the Senate votes on a COVID-19 hate crimes bill. Democratic senators from Connecticut and Massachusetts urging the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to come up with recommendations for improving advanced driver assistance systems. They say they're concerned that the weekend crash of a Tesla that killed two people is part of an emerging pattern. It has not, however, been determined just yet whether Tesla's driver assistance system actually played any role in that crash. And this dash cam video shows a massive highway pileup in progress as Heavy snow and cold temperatures made for dangerous driving. This is on Interstate 41 in Wisconsin. Police say at least 80 vehicles were involved in crashes, and they left one person dead. Kelly, you are now up to date. I'll send it back to you. It's been a bizarre weather week, Rahel. Thank you very much. Sure has. Rahel Solomon. Coming up, too much competition, appliance reliance. Walmart says arigato to Mr. Roboto. And a crazy, costly summer home. It's all in rapid fire. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple quick stories that should also be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines, Bob Bassani, Bassani, Seema Modi and Robert Frank, we welcome today. Let's begin with Goldman downgrading not one but two electric vehicle companies. Says it's still constructive overall on EV growth, but it dropped Fisker to sell from neutral. And Lordstown wants a buy in Goldman's book, also now in neutral. They lowered the price targets on both stocks to just 10 bucks a share. And in the note, the firm writes, we believe that the time to market and the product platform will take on added importance as it becomes increasingly competitive. Goldman goes on to say Fisker is moving too slowly in the EV race. Fisker shares are down 8.5% today. Lordstown, they say, is driving an inferior product to market. They're only down 1%, Bob. Yeah, you know, Goldman's a little late getting to this story about let's get real on electric vehicles. They they all have three or four things in common. Number one, none of them make any money. Number two, they all had huge speculative run-ups going into mid-February. Number three, they all got hit big as interest rates started moving up mid-February, and all of them got clobbered uh, along with the other speculative areas of the market, like SPACs, for example. And they're all for 40 to 70 percent off their 52-week highs as a result of all of this, mm. that run-up in speculative fever and the run-down uh, after the concerns about interest rates. And it's about time. We didn't know in the early part of February when these stocks were all stupid expensive that there was competition? Sure we knew, but everyone was in the grips of this crazy idea that the market was going to go up. And now let's go back to reality. Well, I think it's good and high time. 
And that's a, it's an excellent point from the market point of view, Bob. And that's why, Robert, I wonder what about from the car point of view, you know, where are we on some of these emerging brands? Yeah, I love how Bob says that Goldman is a little late in saying that these companies are a little late to the market. Everyone's late on this. Uh, and, and the issue, as he pointed out, is, you know, just in the past quarter, you've seen VW, you've seen Ford, you've seen GM really come into this market. It's kind of the empire strikes back moment in EVs where all of the OEMs, all the big car companies are finally releasing these EV products that everyone thought they would release years ago to catch up to Tesla. The other issue, as they mentioned, which is product quality, you look at Lordstown, their stock was down 10% just because they entered their endurance truck in this Baja race and the truck basically stopped after 40 miles. The range is supposed to be over 200 miles but the truck stopped after 40. That didn't give people reassurance about the endurance truck. Uh, (laughs) And and so I I just think a lot of these companies that were good at raising money, but not great at building product and delivering it, uh, you know, it's all coming home to roost. Seema, a final word on this. Timeline is key here. I mean, just given the excitement around electric vehicles, that's great, but we need to see products come to market. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's all fun and games when you can just talk about how great it's going to be. It's a little bit more difficult Want to engineer spec. sometimes. Yeah. Uh, appliances, though, are doing pretty well. We have working from home ro- working really well for Whirlpool. Try saying that a few times fast. The home appliance company delivered a blowout quarter just now with sales soaring 24 percent year on year. Stock lowered today. You can imagine it's priced in a lot. Uh, Whirlpool CEO says he thinks the work from home boom will continue, though. Here's his optimism on closing bell yesterday. People have a stronger orientation to a house and a home. Um, if you listen to all the companies announcing their work policies, I would say many consumers will stay on average one or two days more at home. And that just drives appliance consumption, um, literally appliance consumption. Um, and that will not go away in any time soon. And Seema, that to me is what this, it all comes down to. Are people still going to be at home one or two days a week? I know people who have moved way far from the city because they're literally betting their futures on it. They've mortgaged their house with that in mind. I, you know, I see guys running around the neighborhood on conference calls and I'm like, they're probably a lot happier to be doing it this way than stuck in the office. But I, we don't know for sure. And it must be hard for any CEO like Whirlpool to try to make investment decisions around this. You listened to that interview with Sarah Eisenbitzer. It was basically talking about this multi-year cycle unfolding in the housing market and how that's going to be a boon for these appliance companies. They're implementing price increases and it's really working in their favor because at the same time they implemented those cost cuts and you saw the stock move on those earnings and that announcement from the CEO about how the underlying factors behind this housing boom will continue to help his company. Right, Bob, this is also a stock, like I said, that has yeah. priced in a lot of optimism. Even Seema's talking about some pricing right. pressure. I mean, we're up 30% this year. That's right. And so Whirlpool is emblematic of the problem with the stock market right now. How much better could you do than this earnings report? My heavens, what did they beat by 50 percent? They're able to raise prices. The CEO was talking about five to 10 percent price increases. It may not impact their margins as a result of that. And yet... Yet, look at it. The stock's up 30% this year, as you pointed out. The, the market has anticipated that they were going to have this amazing number. And this is the problem all the trading desks are having. Well, how much more amazing are the numbers actually going to have to be mm-hmm. for us to get the stock to move forward? And the answer is, 
Wow. More amazing than this? I mean, that's hard to imagine overall. But again, as you point out, 30 percent is a lot to move in just a few months. Oh, yeah. That was just this year. You know, after everything last year, up 140 percent off the low. So, Robert, and this kind of leads into the next story anyway. But I was I was going to ask, I mean, what do you think is going on? Are people who you're talking to planning on being able to work from home a day or two? Maybe it's in the Hamptons or wherever for the foreseeable future or not. Well, Kelly, I can tell you, we just had to buy in January a new refrigerator and a new stove. <laughs> and back in December, they were saying it would take about a week or two weeks. They are saying neither of those will arrive until at least October. What? October for something ordered. October for a refrigerator and a stove ordered in January. So, you know, the reason that this is not going to slow down anytime soon is because that pipeline of delayed orders and backlog is, you know, six, eight, nine months. Wow. So so that backlog, and then you got people ordering now. So I, I just think there is so much demand from the housing market that that's just going to continue through at least this year. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And that kind of brings us into our next story, which you have pointed out. There's a house renting in the Hamptons this summer for $2 million. So is that being driven by this reopening idea that we can all socialize again? Is it being... Is it the opposite that, hey, you know, if I need a place to bunker down, that's not a bad place to bunker down? Or is it just because the housing market is hot everywhere? Well, it's hot everywhere. But the Hamptons has a particular dynamic, which is a lot of wealthy families left the city. They went to the Hamptons. Either they had a home there or they rented last year. And they didn't plan to stay that long. But then they either bought or extended. And now they've been out there a year. They really enjoy it. There is now the whole ecosystem around wealthy and affluent consumers out there, whether it's the restaurants, the galleries, the stores. And so there is an entire big new year-round community in the Hamptons that now wants to stay and maybe come back to the city one or two days a week. The problem is there just wasn't a lot of new building in the Hamptons. And so inventory is down 41 percent. Prices are up 31 percent. And there is a house in the Hamptons renting this summer, as I wrote about on CNBC.com, for $2 million for the summer. That's $20,000 a day for the entire summer. And and that just speaks to how little supply there is. I mean, even a weekend, Memorial Day coming up, five-bedroom in the Hamptons, $3,000 a night. I mean, prices have just skyrocketed, and it's not confined to just the Hamptons. I mean, Americans are dying to get out there this summer. There's weddings. There's reunions fueling demand for vacation rentals. That's helping Lake Tahoe, parts of Florida. And homeowners feel like they have pricing power so they can continue to demand more uh, for their houses. And I think people are responding because they have those travel dollars they saved up from last year. They want to put it to work this year. And we're starting to see that play out. There is a race underway to get the property you want this summer. And hotels, not, you're not seeing that really reflected there. From 338 to 550, yeah. that graphic on Southampton pricing, boy. Bob, is crazy. Last oh, word. Oh, boy. You, you know, uh, just on the Hamptons rental, if the stock market was down 20% this year, instead of being up 10% <laughs> as it is now, you would not see $2 million houses uh, in the Hamptons. So bear that in mind. But just to the overall situation, you saw that what Seema just put up there, the rental prices being twice that of the uh, hotel prices, that's amazing to me. I mean, at least with a hotel, they change the sheets every day for crying out loud. I mean, look at this. A vacation yeah, rental, you got to change your own sheets. I'm sorry. I'm team rental. I'm Seema. staying in no, the hotel. No, I'm with Bob. I want that rooftop deck, the pool service, the margarita. I don't want to make my breakfast and lunch every day. Who are these people? When yeah, you're on vacation, you want help. You they're want not staff. always in the best part of town, Robert. That's not where they're, you know, you have to drive. Like, sometimes the rentals are just right there where you want to be. Yeah, no, the, and, and that's the thing about the Hamptons is 
you know, there's the fear of missing out. Everyone wants to be in the Hamptons this summer as if there are no other beaches on the East Coast. It's just crazy, but that's where they all want to be. I guess it's a sign the Manhattan market is still doing okay at this point. Thank you all for Rapid Fire today, guys. Bob Bassani, Seema Modi, and Robert okay. Frank. Still ahead, claims for pandemic unemployment assistance up slightly over the past week, but falling significantly over the past two months. With Biden's American Jobs Plan, will things keep getting better or could it actually cost jobs in the longer run? We'll debate it after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The number of people applying for unemployment benefits just fell to a pandemic low last week. Signs of an improving labor market could raise some doubts about President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure package, also known as the American Jobs Plan. With the economic recovery well underway, is it still necessary to create jobs this way? Or could the plan actually hurt the economy? That's our great debate. Joining me now are Douglas Holtz-Aiken, president of the American Action Forum, and Gregory Daco is chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman uh, is here in the middle of it all for us. And Steve, thank you uh, for setting this up. So, Greg, uh, let me go to you first. If you just set up why you think this plan could boost jobs, boost the economy, uh, lay that out for us first. Yeah, I think when we're looking at the Biden stimulus action so far, they've been mostly cyclical. Uh, right now, we're looking at a plan that is aiming at the structural uh, side of the U.S. economy. So really lifting long-term growth and the economy's long-term potential. We don't think it's necessarily going to create the most jobs ever since World War II, uh, but we think there could be a potential one million jobs over the next year and a half uh, that's created by this plan, and maybe two million jobs over the next three years. Um, so a net benefit, but also, and perhaps more importantly, a boost to the economy's potential. And that's really what we're looking for at this stage of the recovery. Right. And uh, boosting the economy's potential, Doug, is more than just boosting GDP. It means it means we can do more GDP on top of more GDP in the future. You know, it sort of multiplies. <laughs> yeah. But you're much more skeptical on what the jobs plan would do. Why? And, and what do you think would happen instead? Well, I, I agree with Greg that you really do want to look at the long run potential. And this is not about the cyclical recovery. And we simply took candidate uh, Biden at his uh, word and raised $3.3 trillion in taxes. And we all agree that's bad news for the economy. But we then plowed that $3.3 trillion exclusively into productive infrastructure and R&D, thereby stacking the deck as much as possible. We put it into a formal model, much like the Joint Committee on Taxation would use. And the answer that comes out is that over the next 10 years, the economy shrinks slightly as a result. So the bad news from the taxes is not outweighed by the productivity of a much bigger infrastructure stock. It goes up by 16%. And on net, that gives you less productivity, less growth in real wages. And that's bad news for, for the, the American worker. Uh, Doug and Greg, I'm, I'm happy to know both of you guys should be able to rely upon you. And uh, I, I need to have some kind of closure on this debate here. I can't, we, we can't leave here with this kind of thing. And we do not, I, I tell you, we do not want to have a deep debate about the differences in economic models because people will turn it off you. and they go right to sleep. But let me, let, me, let me just start with one place, I think, where the big differences are. Greg, give you the first shot at this. Greg, the impact of raising corporate taxes. Uh, I think Doug's model takes that as very, very negative. You think it doesn't have that big an effect. Make your case on that. Yeah, I think we're, we're both in agreement that increased investment in the long term is good. And there is about over $2 trillion of additional investment over the next eight years. So that has a fairly strong net positive effect in terms of economic activity, in terms of jobs. The key question is how negative uh, the increase in revenues becomes for the economy. 
And when we look at it, uh, we look at it from a, a slightly different angle. When we look at the increase in the statutory corporate tax rate, at the increase in the global minimum tax, at the uh, limitations on inversions, we think that it will have a negative effect on economic activity, but it, that it will be manageable. Just to give you some numbers, we think that on net, the plan would add to growth in 2022 of about 0.8 percentage points. And within that, a drag of about a tenth or two from the increase in corporate taxation. So if we look back at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and that effect, we think that that had a fairly positive effect on business investment, but not as much as people were saying. We did not see as much of an increase in economic activity as was said at the time. So reversing part of that won't have as negative of an effect as others may be saying. And, and so Doug, Steve, you think CEOs pick up their toys and go home, right? That's uh, what happens when so you raise I, the I, corporate tax? I think the corporate tax has a, a strong negative impact, no question. But I think there are really two very important points to make. Uh, number one is how you think about the baseline. In our work, you know, the American Rescue uh, Plan does its job. Uh, we're back to full employment, and we credit no cyclical improvement in employment to the, the American Jobs Plan. So that's a big difference, I think, in some of the results. Uh, the second thing that's really important here is that, you know, with the announcement of, of for today, for example, of the higher capital gains tax rate, uh, the, the fact that we're going to have an American family plan, which has a bunch of genuine non-infrastructure spending, you know, more, more tax credits, uh, paid family leave, things like that. We are migrating toward what we actually priced, which was a candidate Biden's plan with a lot of tax increases, including top rates going up, capital rates, capital gains rates going up and a lot of spending that has no productivity impacts. Doug, so we're migrating toward our result. Doug, let me ask you, as we move forward with this, given the counterproposal today that would be under $600 yeah. billion in size, what is the number where you think this could help the economy more than it hurts the economy? So it's not a number, and I think that's a mistake that's been made. It was made for four years in the Trump administration, saying we need a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. You need to decide what you're trying to accomplish. I think we should close the digital divide, do the broadband work mm -hmm. necessary to get that done. Fix roads and bridges and then figure out what that costs. Finance as much of it as you can with user fees, the traditional way to finance infrastructure in the United States, far more efficient. And as a backstop, go to, to general revenue. That's the right way to go at this, but that's not the plan at the moment. I wonder if I could bring both of you out of your comfort zone, which is numbers for both of you guys, and talk about <laughs> what are the added impact? Are we, are we really measuring the impact of something, for example... How do each of your analyses capture the idea if you think that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing? Is that captured in your analysis? The idea of, of, of providing more child care or elderly care, uh, these are, I guess, they're good things. I, we could argue about that. But, but is your, does your analysis, does, does GDP really capture that? Maybe, Doug, take that first. Uh, I believe that reducing greenhouse gas emissions is a good idea, and, and our analysis doesn't have anything for that. That's a benefit of the plan if you take it at face value. Uh, my uh, observation would be that's not how they're selling it. They're not saying, look, we might have to have slower economic growth because we have other benefits we'd like to accomplish. That trade-off is worth it. Make that case. I'm happy to, to have that debate. They're saying, hey, it, it's, it's all a win-win. We're going to have a clean environment. You're going to get more jobs, too, and that's not an honest sales job. Greg? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are some potential jobs in, in investing in, in green energy. Um, if you look at, at some of the, the details of the plan, there are tax credits for housing and green energy. Um, there is investment in the workforce, which I think is important. Um, and to your point about childcare, that's also a very important element because we know that a lot of people were negatively impacted in terms of the labor market participation because of childcare issues. So addressing the displacements of manufacturing workers because of globalizations, because of new technologies, addressing the shortfalls in terms of the labor force and training it for the economy of tomorrow, maybe a greener economy. I think those are all good investments that can create jobs, uh, perhaps different types of jobs over the longer run. And that's generally beneficial for the economy's potential. I, you know, Steve, I think about it sometimes it's like we create jobs so that create more, you know, we everybody goes into the workforce and now you need childcare. Now you create childcare. So everybody goes into that. Work. I mean, it just sometimes feels like layers on top of layers. But I think your point, your question <laughs> earlier was right, which is, is this really about, you know, economic growth goals or political goals? Um, and perhaps that, you know, maybe our guests can't answer that, but I, I suspect you and I could. <laughs> this at least will point us in one direction, maybe, uh, on, on where that is heading. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. Uh, this was enjoyable. Hope to do it again. Uh, Doug Holtzakin, Greg Daco, and our own Steve Leisman. Coming up, Snap was one of the social media winners in the pandemic. The key numbers to watch in its earnings after the bell today will bring you right after this. Started off talking about Intel, but Snap is also set to report its first quarter results after the bell today. The stock is up 600 percent from its pandemic lows in March 2020. So where does it go from here? Julia Borson's got some key numbers to watch. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kelly. Well, the key question is whether the company can keep up the growth that it saw during the pandemic. Analysts expect the addition of 9 million daily active users in the quarter to a total of 274 million. This is after the company added 47 million daily users over the course of last year. Revenue is projected to grow 61 percent to $743 million on a narrow loss of six cents Per share. Now, key topics to watch here are the impact of Apple's new operating system, which will prompt users to opt out of ad targeting, the growth of e-commerce and e-commerce advertising on the platform, and how user engagement is changing as people start to interact more in person. J.P. Morgan writing, quote, Snap should continue to benefit as a strong direct response platform as marketers look to diversify ad dollars away from Facebook and Google. We look for more color on how the company is going to make money from different parts of the business, such as its Spotlight and Maps programs. We expect strong margin expansion this year. That said, we note Snap remains in investment mode with the Spotlight Creator Fund likely weighing on near-term profitability. Now, Snap shares are up a year to date, about 16%, and 72% of analysts do have a buyer overweight rating on the stock. Though, Kelly, these numbers are going to be watched very carefully as a sign of what could come next week when Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest all report their earnings. Back yep. to you. Twitter having a tough session today. Julia, thanks. Looking forward to that after the bell today. Julia Borston. Uh, before we go, take a look at the market, which has really tanked this past hour. It all started with some headlines from Bloomberg suggesting the President Biden could raise the capital gains tax rate, basically double it in order to pay for his American families plan. No confirmation yet uh, from other news outlets. So the investors are still just perhaps mulling that and future tax increases that are likely uh, to be needed one way or the other for these proposals. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. 
That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.